As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Welcome back, everybody. It's another playoff edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Ian Mendes, Sean McIndoo with you for the ride ahead on this episode of the podcast. We'll chat about the underwhelming Habs Leafs playoff series. So much hype, so much anticipation, such little entertainment. The goalie interference rule reared its ugly head again in the Vegas miniseries. Speaking of um, Vegas, Jesse Granger is going to drop by. For a little Granger things, we'll chat about uh, the Golden Knights and the Minnesota Wild going to a seventh and deciding game, plus some betting lines as the opening round of the Stanley Cup playoffs comes to a close. Uh, a couple of teams got bounced in the playoffs on Wednesday, and which one of them, Pittsburgh Penguins or the Florida Panthers, has a bigger issue in goal? And we'll wrap up the show, as we always do, with a little this week in hockey history, looking back at Mark Messier's guarantee and Lanny McDonald going out on Top. But as we kick off this show, Sean, there's a lot of anger in the hockey world over a goalie interference call in game six between Vegas and Mini. And I always say this is what I feel like, okay? I always go to Twitter and people are angry. They get worked up about goalie interference. And you, Sean McIndoo, down goes Brown, you are the voice of reason. You are like, you are the guy that calms everybody down. I always say, like, you're like, you're the Mr. Miyagi of 
goalie interference. You have wisdom beyond your years. So walk us through what was clearly a controversial moment in a in a crucial playoff game. Did they get that one right, Vegas and Mini? Yeah. First of all, let me I'll I'll dispute your premise because I don't calm anyone down when it comes to this stuff because we're all so programmed uh, at this point to to do this whole oh nobody understands goaltender interference so therefore my team definitely got screwed and and on and on we go and it's uh, I, I I'm gonna write a piece I think uh, that's to to lay out the basics here because here's the thing we should not have goaltender interference review it shouldn't exist it's it, this rule does not lend itself well to replay review replay review is good for Black and white, was it on the line, was it not? You know, those sorts of calls. Was the puck over the line or not? That's a great one for replay. Uh, There's a handful of others. Offside, I think, doesn't work well for other reasons, but in theory, it at least lends itself to the concept. The problem with goaltender interference is it's very subjective. So even if you understand the rule, which you absolutely can do because it is not a complicated rule, uh, there's still a lot of gray areas, and there's just there's areas of judgment, and and it, it just... Whenever you put replay review in front of fans, there's an expectation that you're going to just get it right and that we're all going to look at the replay and go, okay, now we all saw the same thing. We all agree. And that's never going to happen for goaltender interference, uh, which is why my starting point is we shouldn't have it at all. But we do. There doesn't seem to be any appetite to get rid of it. So if we're going to have this thing, the next best thing we can all do is, is put in the basic effort to understand the rule. And it... It drives me crazy. And and here, I'm not talking about fans. I'm talking about media. I'm talking about you and me and, and everyone who covers this sport. And it's and I'm not, this is not a subtweet at anyone in specific. This is this is me talking because I see this all the time from all sorts of otherwise very smart people who just go into this shtick of nobody understands, nobody has any idea, flip a coin. It's our job to understand. If you're a fan and you don't get it, that's because you've been failed by people like us who are supposed to explain stuff to you. If you're in the media and you're still, after all these years, doing the big shrug emoji, nobody knows what's going on, that's on you. Because it's not that hard to pick up a rule book and read it and understand most of it. Like I say, you you can get to a point where you will understand 80 to 90% of what happens and what the calls are going to be. You're never going to get to 100% because it's such a subjective call. It, there's just There's no way to get there. But... It's really not that complicated a rule. And the, the one last night, you know, the, the, everyone's going, well, oh, geez, why is this interference? What's that? It's because the guy went in the crease. It was Alex Tuck, was it? On, Alex who, Tuck. He goes in the crease. You can't go into the goaltender's crease. We, people make that out like it's a minor detail when it comes to goalie interference. They sit there and go, oh, was there contact? Was there this? Was there that? Was he in the crease? That's most of the rule. Because the rules are very, very different inside and outside the crease. If you don't learn anything else about goaltender interference, just internalize this. Players can't be in the crease. That's it. That's the goaltender's territory. And anyone who goes in the crease, if there is any sort of interference, it doesn't even have to be contact. Even screening a goaltender in the crease. I've seen that. People going, what, we can't screen goalies anymore? No, not in the crease. You can't do that. You were never able to do that. In this case, Alex Tuck is cutting through the crease. He skates into the blue ice. Now, granted, there's a defenseman right there that makes it hard for him to to get out. I'm sure he would have rather gone in front of the crease, but there's a guy standing there. 
That doesn't mean that he gets to skate through the crease. That's the goalie's area. As a player, you can't be there. Now, yes, if you get cross-checked into that by a defenseman, yes, that's okay. There are certain times where if the puck goes in, you're allowed to go in and try to make a play on the puck, but it's very limited. And they will they, they will very rarely give the leeway to the attacking player there. It usually goes to the goalie in the crease. Outside the crease, totally different set of rules. Virtually every goal we've seen waved off this week, if, if the player had been two inches further out outside the crease, it's that that's fine. There's nothing, if Alex Tuck stays out of the crease, nothing he did last night is a problem. But he's not allowed in the crease. That's the goalie's territory. The goalie has full reign to play his position in there. As soon as you go in the crease, chances are that goal's coming back. See, I told you, you are. You are the guy, you're the voice of reason. And you, you do. When you explain it, it seems so clear. Now, here's my theory on what happened on Wednesday night. The NHL, they're like, we owe Cam Talbot at least five goalie interference calls. Remember the 2017 playoffs, Anaheim Edmonton and Ryan Kessler had uh, it was like that play where, where Talbot's pad got pushed and yep. like and T- Talbot's post game comments there was just uh, he went apoplectic. And I, you know, can you imagine if that one? Uh, can you imagine Cam Talbot if that goal stood? What his reaction would have been? Yeah, he he would have been furious and rightly so. And, and the other thing is with that goal last night. Initially, they they called it a goal. They signaled a goal, but then they got together, and the ruling on the ice before they go upstairs was no goal. So that just raises the bar even more. That it, to to overturn a call on the ice, that it's supposed to be a higher bar than uh, than it would be to confirm one. Now they don't, in my opinion, they don't do that enough. They don't go far enough with that. But yeah, no, Cam Talbot would have been furious because there was a guy in his crease, and he's not allowed to be there. And he was interfering with, with Cam Talbot's ability to stop that shot. I, I saw all the people, again, you know, doing the shtick and the shrug emojis, and, and, and I saw a lot of fans who were convinced that was the wrong call, this is terrible, et cetera, et cetera. No, it wasn't. That wasn't a very hard call. There's a player in the crease interfering with the goalie. It's no goal. Now, we can argue about what the rules should be, and we can talk about how this is a league that there's not enough goal scoring and should we be taking goals off the board. That's fine. I'm happy to have that conversation. Like I say, I would get rid of the reviews entirely, but we have reviews. We have a rule. Read the rule. It's not that tough. You can't be in the crease. End of review. You know, I, uh, I we'll, we'll pick up this series a little later. Jesse Granger will, will drop by. We'll talk about a Game 7 for the Vegas Golden Knights, and I think we're all hoping, I think a, a lot of hockey fans were hoping for Colorado Vegas, but hey, Colorado Mini, that might be a pretty uh, fun series. But the one, Sean, that we were so focused on, a lot of hockey fans, was the the, the kind of the one that was going to be the first one of our lifetime that we would remember, Montreal-Toronto. Iconic, original six franchises, arguably, probably not arguably, they're the two biggest uh, franchises in the, in the sport, meeting for the pl- first time in the playoffs in basically 40 years, and it's been a dud. And I threw this question out on Twitter yesterday. We got some fun responses. I said, help us finish this sentence. The Leafs-Hab series is the most disappointing thing in hockey since blank. Okay? So I got a few a few responses from people. A couple of people said most disappointing thing since the outdoor game at Lake Tahoe. That Not was bad. pretty good, right? Not bad, the, yeah. The sun, um, the sun is our enemy. At least we got that uh, that quote uh, yeah. to live with. Uh it was. It's the most disappointing thing uh, since the NHL decided to have video review for offside. 
Yep. Good call. That might, think, might have been my burner account, but all right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so those are some of the uh, some of the examples that we had coming in from uh, listeners or, uh, to the podcast on social media. If I asked you, Leafs Habs, it's the most disappointing thing in hockey since blank. What's your answer? I think the series is going great. I'm not disappointed at all. And in fact, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip this around on you because I'm 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 watching this series from a fan's perspective. And when you're a fan, you don't care about entertainment value. You you are just results oriented at that point. This is it. Anyone who has spoken to a New York Islanders fan in the last three years knows that when you're when you're a fan, you're you're not looking for for the entertainment. So I can't answer the question, I don't think, because I'm 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 watching it from that perspective. Has this been a letdown of a series? Has this been a bust? Is it is it that? Listen, are, that you, are you being serious here? No, I, I'm asking serious? because I I again like I'm not I'm not trying to argue that it right. has been entertaining. I'm saying that's not the view that I'm taking. So I'm asking somebody I, who's sitting I there with it. the bag of popcorn just looking at it the same way that I would look at the other seven series, scale of one to ten, like how bad has it been? I, I, and again, I think part of it was there was a hype machine here, right? Like this sure. this series was hyped up and it's been a letdown. I think the Tavares injury certainly cast a shadow over game one. I didn't yeah, I didn't thoroughly yeah. in fact I didn't enjoy it at all. No. I, like as a I, I felt sick to my stomach. And then since then, I guess as a Leafs fan, you would say, this is what you've been craving in the playoffs. There's kind of these low event kind of just lock it yeah. down get a lead and then get a lead right and, out and sit on it. third period yeah but man a lot there hasn't for. been anything of like i've watched and, and maybe i don't know maybe is this a function of no fans in this dance because you're watching the carolina nashville series you're watching tampa florida and there's this wonderful energy and i wonder is is part of it the contrast of no fans to some fans and it's and it's adding to what feels like a very vanilla series. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly got to be the case. And it's it's you're right by comparison when you go to some of these buildings that are getting close to being full, uh, the fans make a huge difference. And that is, I think we were all able to kind of deal with the, the lack of fans in our head when nobody had fans. But now that you're flipping the channel and you're you're seeing like these these buildings going crazy. I think that's part of it. I think, I mean, it, you know, you, the Montreal Canadiens are a team that it's been well-documented, don't have a lot of game breakers uh, uh, on the offensive side. This was a team that was going to need Carey Price to be fantastic. He has been for, for most of the series. Uh, I think this, this Leafs team, there's this feeling out there that this is the run-and-gun team that tries to beat you seven to six. And that's not really what they've been this year. So I I think if you were sitting down expecting that this was going to be a battle between with at least one team that was just trying to light up the scoreboard kind of hasn't been that. The one thing I'll say, and I mean, we're, I'm stating the obvious here and I'm I'm guessing probably a lot of people have been screaming at us as we're talking about this. This series isn't over yet. We're, we're four games in to a potentially seven game series. So there's a lot of room left for, for twists and turns. And I know, look, the Leafs have been the better team. There's an expectation that they'll close it out tonight, but it's not very hard to imagine a situation where Carey Price has a great game tonight. Canadians steal game five. Now you go back to Montreal. There's going to be a few fans in the building that changes the dynamic. Montreal wins game six. Now it's game seven. Oh my goodness. And, and here we go. And all the, all the storylines and narratives and everything spring to life. So 
there's a long way for this to go. I I, I tell you, I, I read the piece by uh, Arpan on on the Athletic this week, and I recommend it if you're a Montreal fan. If you're a Toronto fan, do not read it because it chilled me to the bone. As he was comparing the first four games of this series to the first four games of the Canadians Capitals series in 2010, when the the Canadians were big underdogs, they win game one, everyone goes, oh, hold on a second, this could be interesting. They lose the next three, everyone goes, okay, there you go, Washington's going to close them out. Hey, who's Washington playing in the next round? Uh, you know, going on to the whole thing, and then the goalie gets hot. They steal game five. They win game six at home. Next thing you know, and, and I'm just reading it going. I I shouldn't have opened this up. If you're a Montreal <laughs> fan, you're looking for optimism. Check that piece out. Because, uh, look, I, I mean, the Toronto Maple Leafs don't close out series early. They just don't. I, I tweeted this last week. There has been, since 1963, since the Leafs won the Stanley Cup in 1963 in five games, they have had one series in 50, what, what are we talking, 58 years one seven-game series that they've won in less than six games. Once. One time. They haven't won a five-game series since that 1963 Stanley Cup. So in other words, if you started watching hockey in 19, at the 1963 offseason, you've seen the Maple Leafs win more Stanley Cups than you have seen them win a short series. And this is the team that never wins Stanley Cups. So it's, uh, yeah, they should win tonight. They should close out the series. We should be talking about Leafs-Jets tomorrow. But anybody who's who thinks this series is over, hold on. We there, there is still lots of room for for some extra chapters to be written. Here. Yeah, the the sweep of Ottawa in two thousand one, right? Would That's be the, the only the, one uh, series that they wrapped up quick. Uh, y- y- it's funny you mentioned uh, that that twenty ten Habs team with Yarrow Halak. They beat Washington in round one. They beat Pittsburgh in round two. And remember when the Penguins lost that series, Sean? It kind of sent them in a spiral for like four or five years where we were like, ooh, I don't know. Are the, pe- are the Penguins still good? And we were like, has the window closed on the Penguins? And here we are 11 years later yep. and we're asking the question again, has the window closed on the Penguins? And I think Tristan, I think the worst part of this all is that they probably were the better team, uh, certainly in game six and at times in that series. Tristan Jari let them down. So here's the question. If you're sitting in Ron Hextall's shoes and Brian Burke's shoes, how do you look at the Penguins in the offseason? And has the window closed? What do you do with Malkin? What do you do with the goaltending? It's going to be a really interesting four months here for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, and they were the better team, except for the goaltending. And as I'm sure Islander fans would point out, goaltending is part of the team. And so, you know, th- that is something we looked at this Penguins team kind of all year and went, oh, it, is the goaltending good enough? And remember, there were even those early in the season, there were those rumors, could Marc-Andre Fleury be coming back? And uh, you know that doesn't sound like it ever actually got close to happening, but boy, you you look at the way the season played out, and you think if if they had ever had a way to do that, um, completely different ball game. I, I don't think the window is closed. I will admit that I've spent the last few years saying that it feels like the window is closed, and they keep proving me wrong. Um, so I I don't think it is. But I thought like Sean Gentile had a really good uh, column after after the game saying that, you know, this, this was another year gone off of the Sidney Crosby era. And, and there's, there's only so much of that left and, and Evgeny Malkin as well. In fact, maybe him, especially since he needs a new, new contract uh, next year, it's uh, the time is starting to run out and to go into a series like this. Look, we've, we've all seen teams go into the playoffs and we go, we're not sure about the goaltending. 
And then the goaltending's fine because that's how goaltending works in the NHL. You never really know. And, uh, you know, they, they go in and, and Tristan Jari plays great. Hey, we're all, we're all saying, you know what, that was smart of them. They didn't panic. They didn't give up assets, but that's not how it played out. And, uh, you know, this is it. What does Ron Hexel do? What does Brian Burke do? I mean, remember Brian Burke when he would in Vancouver with Dan Cloutier and then, you know, they would lose. And then he gave the big, sp- I will never again have my team not have the goaltending or whatever he said. Here we are. Happens again. Uh, I They've got to go out and find someone. The good news is the expectation, at least, is that this is going to be the offseason where there's going to be a lot of churn in goaltending because of the expansion draft. You can only protect one goalie. So any team that's got two guys, they don't want to lose somebody for nothing. You, you think they're going to be hit in the trade market. So uh, there should be guys out there uh, for, for Pittsburgh or, or any other team that is going to need goaltending. They better find the right guy, though, because this is not, you know, you, you don't have Five more years of prime Sidney Crosby. I don't know what the number is, how many you've got, but it's it's not that many. You know, I, I think it's it's interesting, too, because goaltending was at the heart of the Florida Panthers uh, exit in the playoffs, too, in a different way, in that they couldn't figure out who to use. It was a little Bobrovsky. It was a little Chris Streaker. Then it was a little Spencer Knight. And I can't help but wonder, man, if they had put Spencer Knight in for game one, maybe we're having maybe we're having a different conversation. But if I asked you, those two teams that got knocked out on Wednesday night, the Pittsburgh Penguins and Florida Panthers, Sean, okay, I'm going to ask you, which team's goalie issues would you rather have, Pittsburgh's or Florida's? I, I mean, I'd rather have Florida's because Florida's got a goaltender. They've got Spencer Knight, and they've got their goalie of the future. Their problem is they're also locked into this big, ugly contract with Sergei Bobrovsky, who I'm not ready to completely write off as a, uh, you know, as a, as a good NHL goaltender, but obviously has not been anywhere near what they thought they were getting when they signed him. Um, but the good news is if, if, if you got Spencer Knight, he's going to be on an entry-level deal for a couple of years, so it, it, it makes it a bit easier maybe to absorb that Bobrovsky deal, or maybe there's a way to get out of it. I can't imagine you're going to be able to trade it or, or anything like that, so you probably just have to eat it. Um, but I would rather have... I, I don't want to say the Panthers have too much goaltending because they've got an unproven young goalie who looks good, but we're, you know, we, we saw with Carter Hart, you never quite know how that's going to play out in a given year. And they've got a veteran making too much money. So I, I don't think they have too much goaltending, but they have some goaltending versus Pittsburgh, where it almost feels like I, I don't even, I, I, I don't think bringing Tristan Jari back as a starter is an option at this point. I, I don't see anyone else in the organization that I trust as my go-to guy on opening night. So you, you got to go out and find someone. Whereas the Panthers, could probably go into next year with what they already have and feel okay about it. Man, I'm torn. I, I think I'd rather be the Penguins with their goalie only because of what you laid out earlier of the expansion draft. And like, maybe you can get Jake Allen or maybe you can get who like whoever it is and you're not locked into him for whatever, you know, like six, seven years like you are with Bobrovsky. Like that, I think the Penguins obviously to me have more flexibility. Yeah. But, but like you said, at least the, the the Panthers have their guy, and it's man, it's a it's going to be a tough it's going to be a tough one for the Panthers. I still never even at the time when they signed Bobrovsky, it was like right on the heels of drafting Spencer Knight. Like it never made sense. Yeah, and to me, but I mean it? the thing with that is when you when you draft a goaltender, very often you're looking at a guy who's, who's not coming in for four or five years. I mean, how many rookie NHL goalies do you see make their debut and then? You, you look and the guy's 25 years old and he's, he's been, he's been working on his game forever down in the minors or wherever else. So I, I mean, 
I don't think you draft Spencer Knight and then say, well, we don't have to address the goaltending, especially when you're the Florida Panthers in that situation where they were in a couple years ago where you're saying, we got to have some success. We got to win a few rounds. Uh, I don't mind them going after a, uh, a big name or even a Sergei Bobrovsky, but the, the seven years, I mean, that is, I, I would never go seven years to any goaltender under any circumstances, let alone a veteran guy late in his career where you, where you know there's going to be a decline on the back end of that contract, the it's 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 like any other big deal. You got to say what's the ceiling here and what's the floor. And I I don't think the ceiling on that was all that high for that many years. Uh, the floor was pretty much what we're seeing. And and I, I I know that sure I'm sure they went to Sergey Bobrovsky and said we'd rather do three or four years. And and he probably said no, I'm going to get seven somewhere. And that's the cost of doing business. But at that point, you maybe you have to make the tough calls and 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 walk away, or maybe you got to say, hey, if it's going to be this many years, we're not going to make you the second highest paid goaltender in the in the history of the league. Uh, I don't know. It's it's easy to look back and and say that it didn't work because it clearly hasn't. Um, the good news is that Spencer Knight's been not only everything they thought they were getting, but is is fast tracking his way to the NHL. Getting he's he's arriving quicker than you would have thought he would. And that's great. Maybe this is your guy. But you got to figure out what you're going to do with this this big ugly contract because it's it's really hard to win in the NHL when you've got that much dead money sitting on your bench wearing a baseball cap. Yeah, and uh, you know I think goaltending obviously was also at the front and center. Winnipeg Jets. Connor Hellebuck played like Connor Hellebuck can play, uh, and I wanted to bring this up only because remember a few weeks ago I told you I was like. Man, something weird's going to happen to McDavid in the playoffs. Watch every time there's been a this like statistically dominant season, it ends in weirdness. I didn't think that, I, I, that's why I picked Winnipeg to advance. I never in a million years thought that the Oilers would get swept though. No. And a uh, shout out to everyone who took our advice and took Connor McDavid with the first overall pick in their playoff pools. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll, uh, <laughs> uh, it, I didn't, I didn't see this coming. I, I look, I picked the Oilers uh, as I think most people did. I'm not shocked that the Jets won. I think that the Jets are, as as I said, I think on the show, and as I, I wrote in quite a few places, they they've got a lot of weapons up front, and they've got a really really good goaltending, and that's not a bad combo to have in the playoffs. But I didn't see it being a sweep like that. And, and look, that was a close series. I don't know if there's such a thing as a close sweep, but if there is, that was it. Three games in overtime. The Oilers. You look at the underlying numbers. Played pretty well. Uh, just, just couldn't get a goal. And, and look, some of that's just Connor Hellebook. This guy is, this guy is a legit elite star in this league, uh, who should probably not just be getting a lot of, uh, Vezina consideration, but should be showing up on a lot of hard trophy ballots, given what he's got working in front of him, uh, in Winnipeg. So, uh, full credit to them, but yeah, I, I, it's a tough path now going forward for Edmonton. And you're right. It, it, to say you had your piece today yet again, a player has a all-time generational type offensive season and a round or two into the playoffs going home. Yeah. And, you know, what What a 24 hours for the Oilers. They lose that series. And then Wayne Gretzky leaves the organization. He's going to TNT. And the reason why I bring up Gretzky, he's front and center in your piece, uh, which I thought was a really fun column uh, that you had on The Athletic uh, yesterday, which was, what if you put together a team of general of 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 guys that were general managers 
and you put them up against a team of guys who ended up being head coaches, who would win? And, you know, at, my first thought was, well, Eisenman Sackick, that's probably going to end up being a pretty good. And then you're like, ooh, but yeah, Gretzky coached in, 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 in Arizona for a long time. And as you put this together, this was actually pretty balanced. Like, I'll, I'll be honest, it was pretty balanced. Probably you would, you would say the team made up of coaches is going to be a little bit better. But this is, uh, this is probably a pretty fun column to, uh, to put together. It it actually was, and this is this is one of those where I I had in, in this case actually a couple of different readers send it in and and suggested, and I I was kind of like kind of like you. My very first thought was, well, team coach is going to have Gretzky and Patrick Waugh, so that's going to be a hard combo to beat. And then you start thinking, wait a second, hold on, Sackick Eiserman plus Ron Francis, that's pretty good. And then I started digging in, and you know I'd forgotten that Brett Hull was briefly a GM in Dallas and Phil Esposito had that legendary run in, oh. in New York and later Tampa where he was just trading everyone. And I, you know, when, as I was building out the forwards, I think team GM takes it, but it's interesting because when you get to the defenseman, it's, it tips quite a bit to the, to the coach side. And I don't know if there's anything to read into that. I know sometimes people think coach or defense is like this more, it's more of the thinking man's position. Uh, and uh, maybe that, that translates to something, but you've got like the Larry Robinsons and, Red Kelly, even Randy Carlisle, who, who won a Norris uh, trophy, whereas Team GM had a couple of guys. They got Rob Blake and Doug Wilson, obviously, right now. Um, Serge Savard had a, a lot of success in Montreal, but you, it kind of drops off after that. And then the goaltending is, is pretty even, too, because you, you've got Patrick Waugh, but on the other side, you got Ken Dryden, and uh, that's uh, that gives you the battle of the Montreal guys. It was just one of those fun things. Throw the rosters together, gives us something to argue about, and and then we can we can fight it out in the comments section over which team would would actually win. You know, I, I and I think the the you you put the caveat the stipulation in like you had to spend one season in the role. Yeah, more, more the, than for, one season more, because yeah. there's there's a lot of guys oh. that got one year as a coach. Brian uh, Trottier is it. the first name. Yeah. I was like, oh, Brian Trottier is going to be your second line center. Was my yep. first thought, and then I I read because I saw the headline. And I was like, oh, Gretzky, Brian Trottier, one, two, down the middle. And then I opened your piece. I'm like, ah, here comes the caveats. Yeah. And, and there goes Brian Trottier. And, and, and the reality is I had to do that because otherwise you get team coach runs away with it. Like guys like Rocket Richard was a coach for one year. And, and you go down the list, other Doug Harvey, guys like that. And, and that's just because very often in NHL history, and this wasn't really the case with Trottier, but teams especially newer teams struggling to sell tickets would just grab a superstar drop him behind the bench and then after a year you go oh he's not very good at this and and they would move on to something else even Gordie Howe was offered the job he was going to be the first head coach of the New York Islanders they offered him that job and he thought about it but he he decided not to and kept playing in the WHA and how different does that history work if uh you know instead of Al Arbor eventually taking over there maybe it's it's Gordie Howe behind the bench for this new expansion team Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Sean, as always, time to bring in our pal Jesse Granger from Vegas for a little Granger Things brought to you by BetMGM, the exclusive a betting partner with The Athletic. And gotta gotta ask you how you're feeling now. A series that looked like maybe the Golden Knights could wrap it up in five or six. Here we go. It's a game seven on your plate. Yeah, deja vu for Vegas and the Vegas Golden Knights fans. This is the third year in a row that we're uh, heading for a game seven after the Golden Knights took a three-one lead, and it and it feels similar to those those other series. I mean, you go back to two years ago, obviously the San Jose series that will live in everyone's minds forever because of the way it ended with the five-minute major, but. In that series, the Golden Knights were scoring at will. You look at those first few games, they took that 3-1 lead. They were scoring a lot of goals, and then suddenly they look like the team that's that's playing not to lose and not a team that's trying to impose their will. And then the same thing happened last year against Vancouver. They were it looked like that they were going to mop the floor with Vancouver and then suddenly no goals when they need them most uh, with three wins in the series. And now this series against Minnesota, they go up to Minnesota. They score nine goals in two games to take that commanding 3-1 series lead. It looked like all things were trending to, okay, they finally figured this team out. They're the better team. They're going to take care of them. And and these last two games, they've looked very timid. Um, they, they don't get going until Minnesota gets on the board and then kind of try to ratchet up the intensity once they're down. But then it's a little too late. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens tomorrow night at T-Mobile. Obviously, a huge game for a team with very high expectations entering the playoffs. And, uh, and you know, you were telling Sean and I before, like, like, like Vegas and Colorado is the series. Like, if you had picked one series before that everyone wanted to see unequivocally in round two, I think it was that. Yeah, probably some people might say Carolina, Tampa, or whatever. But uh, this one to me was the one everyone had circled. And what you were telling us is that, man, even like right now, you could theoretically put some money down on a on a round two series involving uh, Vegas and Colorado, even though it hasn't uh, come to pass yet. Yeah, this series has, it's felt like these two teams have been on a collision course for each other since January, since the season started. I mean, they've been amongst the favorites to win the cup, both Vegas and Colorado, since the beginning. They have absolutely trounced everyone else in the division all year long. And it was kind of a like, all right, let's get this undercard over with so we can get to the main event. And and Minnesota had other plans. And this was kind of the nightmare scenario, right? When we were watching Colorado and Vegas fight it out for first place down the the stretch, and you remember Vegas had those these games where they weren't using full lineups, and and Colorado nips in and takes top spot. It, this this was the scenario we're thinking of. First of all, the fact that Minnesota obviously is a good enough team that they could pull off an upset. But even if they don't, even if Vegas wins game seven, Colorado's gets the brooms out, gets their series over quick. They're sitting at home. They're resting up, getting healthy. Uh, and this, this series is going to be a seven-game battle. It's going to be real tough. Even if, the, even if the Golden Knights do win game seven and do hold serve at home, that they're... They're going to be in real tough against a rested Colorado team um, when you know Vegas is going to be anything but. 
Definitely. And and Vegas is a little banged up now, to, to say the least. Um, they had four guys that are regulars in their lineup missing last night in game six. And and obviously, Max Pacioretty's the big one, leads the team in goals. He is the best goal scorer on a team that lacks true goal scorers. He is that he fills that role for them. And he's been missing for this entire playoffs. Um, they don't know when they're going to get him back, if they're going to get him back. And then last night, they're also missing Braden McNabb, who was a late add to the NHL's COVID protocol list. They're missing Ryan Reeves, who was a late scratch. And, and Peter DeBoer said that wasn't a healthy scratch. He he had something going on. We haven't found out what yet. And Tomasz Nosek, who also got injured during this series. So they have four regular starters that are missing from this series. The only the only counter I'd give to to how difficult this is going to be if the Golden Knights do survive this series is for the last three years, Vegas has had the easy road. They have cruised through the majority of the playoffs and they have always been where Colorado is. They've always been that team waiting for the rest of the series to finish. And it, I like I've had the conversation so many times with the coach about like rest versus rust, and it hasn't won them a cup. It so many times they've gotten to rest while the other team battles. And then when that next series starts, it looks like the other team is better prepared for that battle. And they've been through it and they're they're already in that mode. Whereas the Golden Knights, like Dallas in the Western Conference Finals, we saw it. Vegas had kind of cruised through Chicago, and then they had a little scare against Vancouver, but they knew they were better than that Vancouver team. While Dallas was battling Colorado, and 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 Dallas caught them off the jump, and and I just think, while yes, it's ideal to be healthy, and and if they don't have Max Pacioretty, they're going to be tr- in trouble regardless. I do think that there could be some positives to having to battle against a team as good as Minnesota in the first round for Vegas. Well, let's uh, as as the first round is uh, wrapping up. Why don't we just kind of see what trends you've seen so far here uh, as uh, some of these series are headed to a sixth or a seventh game. Uh, Let's start with Carolina and Nashville. And I think a lot of people thought maybe Nashville could do what the Minnesota Wild are doing, which is kind of punch above their weight, hang around, maybe pull off an upset if UC Saros gets hot. What are you seeing as that series heads to a sixth game? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And to me, the story of this series is the home crowds. Um, They've they've both stadiums have been, I think, 12,000 each in Carolina and Nashville. The The atmospheres have been awesome on TV. I'm sure in person they're even better. And the home team is 5-0 and in this series. Uh, they are taking care of business on home ice. So that leads you to believe that Nashville's the team to bet in Game 6. But Carolina's a minus-145 favorite. And to me, that's one, obviously... Carolina has been the better team this year, but also um, I'm looking at trends and game five team that wins game five and the series is tied two two to go up three two obviously has a better chance of winning. They win 79% of the time. But to me, the more important part of that is out of the 214 times that the team that won to go up three two has went on to win the series, 70% of that time, it's in game six. They don't even let it get to game seven. So historically, a team wins get to go up three two, they win to win win the next game to win the series 4-2 a lot more often than it goes to game seven. So I think that's the that's the trend there. And then if that ends up going to game seven, um, looking at the trends all time, Carolina's five and three all time in game sevens, and they are a perfect three and zero in rally, which is where that game seven would be. So if that game goes to a game seven, the Hurricanes have been incredibly good there at home. Nashville one and two all time um, in game sevens and one and one on the road. So, so what do you guys think about that? Home teams five and zero in this series. Do you think Nashville keeps that going? Boy, I, I this feels to me like one of those things where I, I I'll be honest, I had already moved on. Uh, I saw Carolina win those first two games. I thought, yeah, taking care of business. Nashville claws back a couple of double overtime wins. I'm thinking they've got some momentum here. They've got something. And then that third, that, that fifth game rather goes into overtime. You're thinking here it goes. When I see Carolina win that game, there's a part of me that goes, that was 
Nashville shot. Yeah. Now this is Carolina's series to win, and and I see them closing it out. Yeah, I, I tend to th- think the same way. I I was done. I went two nothing. I thought this was th- this was going to be a sweep, and then and for Matt Duchesne of all people, right, the much maligned Matt Duchesne to get the overtime winner in Game Three, you thought, oh wow, like that's a that's a plot twist that I didn't see coming. I'd love for this to go to a seventh game. My my biggest disappointment in the first round, I think, is that we didn't see a Game Seven of Florida and Tampa. So if we get a seventh game in the other series, I think I think that'd be pretty cool. Definitely. Uh, now we talked about this at the top of the show, Jesse. Is that Montreal Toronto has been at least from an entertainment standpoint it's been it's been disappointing it's been underwhelming hasn't lived up to the hype from a betting perspective here it I'm curious about the line so far uh the, the Habs just can't score like the Montreal right. Canadiens can't score and I'm wondering how that's kind of played out from a from a uh, a betting perspective here. Yeah, so so that's exactly where I'm going with these trends. Um, this series, the the over under on these games has been low, five and a half. Um, the 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 over unders are generally somewhere between five and six, and they've been five and a half for every game this series. And despite it being that low, they've still gone under in three of the four games. Uh, the only game that did go over was Game Two, and that was a five one win for Toronto, and that took an empty net goal by Alex Kerfoot late to get it over that total. So. If you had the over in that game, you weren't feeling particularly good until the final minute you get an empty net goal to cover. You're happy, but that wasn't the right side. So I'd say the right side has been the under in almost every game in this series, three of the four. And that's because these two goalies have been awesome. Um, You mentioned Montreal's having a hard time scoring. Jack Campbell. 4.2 4.2 goals saved above average or above expected. He's fifth in the league. Carey Price above him with 4.6 goals saved above average. They have both been spectacular in net. Uh, Carey Price is holding Montreal in in games that they probably don't belong to be in at times. Uh, Jack Campbell, like you said, Montreal can't score much of anything. In his last three games, he stopped 82 of 84 shots. Um, I think the if, if you're looking for a way to bet this series, I wouldn't bet a side. I'd take the under. Um, it's been the right side almost every game. If you are looking at sides, Toronto's a minus 220 favorite tonight. And favorites of 200 or more in this playoffs are 7-1 and one, uh, so far. So obviously outstanding. You'd expect that out of favorites that good. The, the only holdup is the one was game one uh, when Toronto was a 200-plus favorite and, and lost to Montreal. So so there is some hesitancy on that. But but yeah, that's that. those are the trends for that game. I'd love to get in the mind of a Leafs fan like Sean and ask him what his his odds are in his mind because it feels like a, the money line in your mind would be like this those, is... Those odds seem really steep yeah. to me, really yeah. steep. I cannot imagine the, uh, the, the confidence uh, to go that, that, that high up the numbers, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll be keeping my wallet in my pocket on this one. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, Jesse, the last series is uh, the one we started with. Uh, just give us a sense of the Game 7 line for Vegas and the, and the Minnesota Wild here. Yeah, despite blowing the last two games, Vegas still a minus 165 favorite in Game 7, which is pretty sizable. And it makes sense when you look at the historical numbers. Um, it's funny because we've talked about on this show how in the NHL playoffs, home ice advantage hasn't meant a lot. Um, it, at, at times, there are years where the home teams lose the majority of games. But in Game 7, it, funny enough, home ice seems to matter a little bit more. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's the point. Maybe these coaches, the, the reason you fight all season to get that home ice is maybe not so much for the grand scheme of things in the playoffs, but for if we have a Game 7, we get to play it on our home ice. And all time uh, in the NHL, home teams are 105 and 76 um, in Game 7, 58% of the time. So that obviously favors the Golden Knights. 
this series is a little different considering they were up 3-1. I went back and looked, and teams that have come back to from down 3-1 to force a Game 7, it's happened 60 times in NHL history, and it's been a pretty even split. The team that was up 3-1 that's blown the lead has won 31 of those, and the team that was down 3-1 has won 29, so almost a perfect 50-50 split in that, um, which I think if you're a Vegas fan, that makes you feel good because you, you lose the last two, and it, like I went into this looking at these numbers, expecting the team that had won two in a row to have won the majority of the game sevens, just because that's just that's how the series feels that it, it, it how, it's what you expect. But clearly that hasn't happened as the team up three one has actually won more of those games. Um, the only thing Vegas does have going against it is the wild are three and all time in game sevens and all three have been on the road. They've won twice in Colorado and once in Vancouver. So this team historically has been able to get it done on the road in Game 7. The Golden Knights are 0-2 trying to close series out at T-Mobile Arena, which is hard to believe considering the home ice advantage they've had there. But they, they have struggled to close teams out there. And the final stat I'll give you is Pete DeBoer... 5-0 and all-time in Game 7s. One was against the Golden Knights to, to help San Jose complete that 3-1 comeback. And then last year against Vancouver, they, they avoided the 3-1 collapse by beating Vancouver. So, so Pete DeBoer has... Really good success in these games. It's it's funny because the numbers kind of point both directions. You can whichever side you want, you can use some numbers to justify it. Man, feels like a to- especially when you lay out the thirty one twenty nine number. It feels like a flip of the coin, a complete uh, flip of the coin uh, in this game seven. Jesse Granger, as always, we love the the visits. Uh, boy, it's going to be interesting to watch the game seven. We look forward to your coverage of that uh, in the Athletic coming up on the weekend, and then uh, we'll get you again in this same spot next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jesse. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply all right sean as always we wrap up the podcast with a little this week in hockey history because you know what it's right up our alley we love the hockey history we love uh quirky stories and trivia and uh, let's start with this one may 25th 1994 may 25th 1994 uh the new york rangers are down three games to two in the eastern final every devil's fan just turned the podcast off as soon as they heard that date the end, yeah, May 25th, 94. <laughs> and Mark Messier delivers his game six guarantee the Rangers would win in New Jersey. And, you know, I do you think that this is an overhyped moment in hockey history? Like, do we do we put too much emphasis on the fact that Messier guaranteed a win? I mean, the key to this is he gets a third period hat trick. It's not like he guaranteed the win and had a secondary assist and they won four to two like hmm. he, he a gets trick and they, he gets the hat trick did take an empty netter to get the hat trick you can point he that did. out but and it's a great call yeah. by it was gary thorne right who had it uh the call back in the day uh it's a great call right and so yeah, my, my only question is though is this like everything else involving the 94 rangers and apologies if my pal nick kiprios is listening because i love nick to death but uh, it, it, is this overhyped the 94 rangers Overhyped. I, I think it probably is. I mean, look, if you're a hockey fan and maybe either you're young or you only became a fan 
relatively recently, you know, in the last decade or so, and you're just going by NHL marketing to try to remember what the 90s are like. You know all about, you would be convinced that Marc Messier was the biggest star in the league, that the New York Rangers were the biggest dynasty in the league, and that the most interesting playoff series in the history of the league was not the 94 Stanley Cup final, which is kind of oddly uh, not remembered in the same way, but that conference final against the Devils. And look, it was it was a great story. The guarantee, uh, I've been having some fun with it, but that, that was a great story. That was That was actually cool. It was one of the rare cases in hockey or even sports history where somebody made a guarantee and they personally were a big part of, of cashing it in. Uh, obviously the, the, I think, I guess today would be the anniversary of the Stefan Mateau goal, which is an, an ugly overtime goal, but still a very memorable one. Great call and all of that. Um, look, I, it, the New York Rangers winning the Stanley cup that year snapped a 54 year drought. The Toronto Maple Leafs, my team right now, have a 54-year drought. If they win the Stanley Cup this year, I expect nobody to ever stop talking about it for a couple of yeah. decades at least. So, uh, But having said that, yeah, there, there's kind of a running joke that if, if you randomly flip on the NHL network at any given moment, there's about a 50-50 chance they will be talking about Marc Messier and the guarantee and the Mateau goal and the Stanley Cup. Uh, I... I don't know if it's overhyped, but I feel like everything else that happened in that era is maybe underhyped when it comes to uh, how the NHL chooses to uh, to remember its history. You know, and 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 you bring up we, we we're talking about like Messier delivered with a third period hat trick, right? Like I I don't have the stats in front of me, but like like Joe Namath has arguably the most famous guarantee in sports, right? Says the Jets are going to win Super Bowl three against the heavily favored Colts. Like Joe Namath's stat line was terrible. In the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Like, I, he was like, the like forget Trent Dilfer. When people say to you, who's a game manager? It was Joe Namath. He didn't yeah. do anything. And at least Messier had a hat trick with their back, you know, to the wall. And and the other thing is, and, and to, to give credit where it's due, his guarantee was a pretty good guarantee. Like, there's there have been a lot of, and, and part of it is because the Messier story was so cool. It's like we've been chasing that story ever since, trying to make it happen again, to the point where these days, like, if a team's got their back to the ropes and somebody will say, like, how are you guys feeling about winning this series and or, or coming back? And, and somebody will say, yeah, you know, yeah, we feel good. And we're all like, was that a guarantee? Did he just guarantee victory? Remember, like, a few years ago, like, Mike Babcock saying, see you later to like some arena staff and people are like, is that a guarantee? Is he guaranteeing that they're going to be back for the next game? And it's like, no, but in this case, he, I don't think he actually used the word guarantee, but he did say we are going to win this game, which is more than, than we usually get. Usually it's just somebody going, yeah, we feel good. And then we're like, that's a guarantee. And then afterwards they lose and it's never spoken of again. Yeah. One of my favorite stories of that is, and it's the NBA when the Cleveland Cavaliers were down 3-1 to Golden State in the finals, whatever, I think it was 2016. And they're down 3-1, and I think their head coach was Tyron Lue. And Tyron Lue went to every player and said, give me like a thousand, like everyone had to, to cough up like a thousand dollars. Because they're NBA players, they they just have that kind of money on them, right? Yeah, it's like sure. nothing. Uh, and everybody had to give him like a thousand bucks. And he went and he's like, look, I'm putting it up in the ceiling. And he put it up in the visiting coach's room ceiling in uh, in Golden State and says, we're coming back to get this. And 
It's funny how you had they use that as motivation, right? Like, yeah. I guarantee. I've never heard that story. Did they make it back? Did they get their money back? Yeah, yeah, they won. Okay, but I always laugh too because I always think, well, I mean, they would have visited Golden State the next year. I'm sure nobody would have looked in the <laughs> ceiling. He could have yeah. gotten the money back. Um, one other this date in, in, in hockey history. Actually, a quick question too on Messier. What's the more impressive Mark Messier Stanley Cup for you? 94 with the Rangers or 1990 with the Oilers? Because remember, 90 with the Oilers, they lose Gretzky. You figure it's it's the end of it, but they win the Cup. What's the more yep. impressive Mark Messier Cup and, and for you? And weren't even a, a, a great team uh, in the regular season. I think that one is more impressive. The 94 one is is a better story. I mean, that was just that that Rangers drought had taken on a life of its own. It's the biggest market in the league. Marc Messier, you know, as, as much as I kind of joked about it, probably was at that point the league's biggest, most marketable star other than Wayne Gretzky and maybe Mario Lemieux. But even that, uh, I, I think he was he was right up there. So that really was a, a really big deal. And it was, it, you know, for for Gary Bettman, his, his first full season coming in as commissioner, you couldn't ask for anything better than your biggest market ending the drought with this big star lifting the Stanley Cup. And then, of course, we went right into a lockout and <laughs> burned all that momentum uh, in to get a work stoppage instead. All right. Well, the year before Mark Messier won the Stanley Cup at Edmonton for the final time in 1990, their provincial rivals, the Calgary Flames, won the Stanley Cup this week in, in hockey history. Sean, the Calgary Flames, May 25th, 1989, become the only team to ever clinched the Stanley Cup at the Montreal Forum. It had only been done by the Habs, but they had become the first and only team to uh, to win a Stanley Cup on the road in Montreal. And everyone remembers Lanny McDonald coming out of the penalty box, uh, scoring a goal on Patrick Waugh. Doug Gilmore ended up having a, a huge uh, role in the third period, iced the win. McDonald gets the cup. And where do you rank that? Is that, is that the best end to a career in hockey history? Uh, is there any, like, is there, you it's, know, it's right else? up there. Yeah. It's, it's right it's, up there, right? The, I mean, that was kind of almost the original old guy without a cup story of, you know, yeah. Lanny McDonald, not, not just a beloved veteran, but even look the role. I mean, right. This guy looks like a, you didn't even have to be a hockey fan to look at that guy and go, oh, okay, this, this is, I'm rooting for this guy. He looks like a grizzled old prospector. Uh, and, and he, he gets, finally gets his hands on the cup in his, his final game. I would say that was the best ending in, to a career in hockey history, right up until Ray Bork, which I think now is kind of the modern equivalent of that. And, and the, the, the one that people think of, I know there are, there are fans who will still go on YouTube and call up that clip of him getting the cup and, uh, get, uh, get choked up thinking about it. So I, I think. Ray Bork is has probably taken over that title, but uh, Lanny McDonald was was right up there because there's not a lot of guys who get to go out uh, with a championship, not just in hockey, but in in sports in general. Yeah, I thought for sure you were going to say, "Come on, the correct answer is Joe Thornton," uh, but maybe maybe we'll have to revisit. Yeah, that. We'll, we'll we'll we can pre-record that and then we'll we'll use it in yeah. a few weeks. Okay, so I'm going to give you another work assignment here as we wrap up the show. Because I know you take a, a lot of your kind of cool, quirky ideas come from uh, amazing suggestions and questions from uh, the Athletic subscribers. They'll fire in uh, questions to your mailbag or the comment section. And I got one for you. Just based on this, and you said, you know, not a lot of people in sports history get to leave with a championship. Okay? And I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know why this guy came into my mind, but I was looking at his career page on Hockey Reference. I'm like, oh. Brian Scrudland 
won a Stanley Cup as a rookie, and then won a Stanley Cup in his final season in the NHL. How many guys in the post-expansion era? Because obviously pre-expansion, your odds were probably maybe pretty good if you played for the Habs or the, like, you know, you could have started your career with a cup and ended it with it. Wouldn't have been that crazy. How many guys would be like Brian Scrutland that in their rookie season, they won a Stanley Cup and in their final season, they also won a Stanley Cup. Uh, Scrutland did it with the Habs in 86 and the Dallas Stars in 99. I'm thinking that's a short list. Is is Brian? Tr- no, I was gonna say Brian Trotche, but no, obviously he didn't. He didn't win. He won at the end of his career. But I'm thinking it's a short. It's a short list. It's it, yeah, it can't be a long list. There's nobody jumps to my mind uh, uh, right away, and and certainly with Scridland, I, I think those would have been his only two cups too, right? Which would have been that that there's probably a few guys who maybe had multiple ones, especially in the in the dynasty eras, but. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a real good one. I'll have to dig into that. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe if a listener has another, uh, a name for us, uh, in addition to, uh, to Brian Scrutland, maybe they can fire it to us. And remember, you can always, uh, get a hold of us by dropping us an email, the athletic hockey show at gmail.com, the athletic hockey show at gmail.com. You can also drop us a voicemail, 845-445-8459. Sean, this was a ton of fun. As always, the hour just flew by. Uh, I tell you. I, fingers crossed for you. I say this in all sincerity. Fingers crossed for you when we get back to do the show next week. We're talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs and Winnipeg Jets matchup. Just for your sake. I, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, if, if if you're not following the series, but you tune into the podcast next week and it's Ian and a co-host, that'll give you a pretty good sense of, of how the, uh, the the rest of that series went. Yeah, listen, enjoy the rest of that series. So we'll do this again uh, next week. And thanks, everybody, for listening to us. Uh, like I said, we'll be back at it on uh, on Thursday of next week. I'll be back in this chair with Haley Salvian coming up on Monday to wrap up the weekend that was. And if you're not a subscriber with us, you can join us at theathletic.com slash hockey show. <laughs>